BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, it's a tumultuous time for our nation. A day before the U.S. Supreme Court took away Americans' nearly 50-year-old right to an abortion, the House Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol presented more evidence of the threat to democracy from the lie of a stolen election, this time showing how close the U.S. Justice Department came to being led by someone who was willing to help ex-President Trump take down a lawful election. We'll take stock of the latest revelations. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Just say it was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. Those were former President Trump's words to top Justice Department officials as he tried to legitimize the lie that Joe Biden lost the 2020 election. It was among the many revelations offered by Acting Deputy Attorney General Richard Donahue and others last Thursday when the House January 6th Committee held its fifth hearing on the events that led up to the deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol. The Times described the way Trump strong-armed the Justice Department as, quote, the most brazen attempt by a sitting president since Watergate to manipulate the nation's top law enforcers to keep himself in power. Joining me now, Shanlin Wu, criminal defense attorney and former federal prosecutor, also a CNN legal analyst. Shan Wu, so glad to have you on. Oh, thanks for having me. Also, Zach Beecham is with us, a senior correspondent for Vox. Zach, also glad to have you on as well. Well, extremely happy to be here. Well, Zach, take us back to Thursday, if you would, and the moments of the hearing that really struck you. So the hearing as a whole is this very detailed description of the mounting pressure between November 2020 and January 2021 that President Trump was putting on the Justice Department to try to take various different actions that would legitimize his claims that there were fraud in the election. Now, it's interesting that Attorney General Bill Barr at the time did, in fact, investigate these claims and repeatedly found nothing. Um, Barr, who was uh, quite infamous for spinning the Mueller report in advance in favor of the president's findings, downplaying the wrongdoing and emphasizing the lack of evidence about right collusion in a way that kind of distorted the findings, would be somebody who you would think might play along with these sort of fantasies, but, but he didn't. Right. And so Barr resigns 
partway through this, seemingly in part because he doesn't want to um, be pressured by Trump over this. And the acting attorney general is then faced with even more pressure from the president and a plot from Trump to replace him with Jeffrey Clark, who is an environmental lawyer who uh, has, as far as we could tell, no relevant qualifications to run the Department of Justice. Right. And there's this meeting that happens and incredibly dramatic, like, like you, you hear it happen during the hearing and it's like, oh, this is a movie, right? Where Trump is very clearly about to appoint Jeff Clark to be the acting attorney general to the point where he had changed the names in the White House call logs of Jeff Clark to acting attorney general. Uh, and there's this meeting with acting attorney general Jeff Rosen uh, and a bunch of other high up DOJ p- officials where they basically uh, re- <laughs> declare that there'll be mass resignations, which they had organized in advance if Trump does this. And he backs down in an Oval Office meeting. It's it like this is, and that's sort of the, the peak of the plot. Yeah. Uh, to suborn the Justice Department. It was absolutely stunning to hear about in in such detail in the hearings. Why did Trump want to fire Acting Attorney General Jeff Rosen and replace him with Jeff Clark? What was Clark willing to do? So Clark, who had been sort of dug out of obscurity by a Republican congressman who was helping with Trump's efforts to suborn the election, wanted to send out a memo, uh, basically instructing states there had been evidence of irregularities in the election and that they should reconsider uh, having a special session in which they send an alternative slate of legislature or of electors to uh, Congress in advance of the January 6th process of counting the votes. Basically, the way the Electoral College works, it's kind of weird, but like none of us are actually voting for president directly. We're voting for who should get to, whose slate of electors should get to go uh, to Washington to vote in favor of the, uh, the the president of their choosing. And like no, normally that's a formality, but what Trump was trying to do was to get state legislatures to assert the power to appoint their own slate of electors in defiance of the official vote counts in states like Georgia. Um, and he wanted the Justice Department to try to encourage and prod state legislatures to do just that. And Jeffrey Clark, it seems, was willing to, to, to do this, but no one else in the Justice Department was. So while Jeff Rosen resisted, Jeff Clark was putting himself forward as the guy who would do whatever Trump wanted. And so hence why Trump wanted to um, put Clark in charge. Shannon Lou, what did you think of this testimony of how close the Justice Department came to being led by someone who was willing to take part in the fake electors scheme and the reaction by Justice Department top officials, Trump's own Justice Department. Chanlin Wu? Oh, sorry about that. I had it on mute. <laughs> no worries. Go right ahead. <laughs> Uh, I think it was an extraordinarily uh, dangerous situation, and I think uh, this would have made the uh, infamous Watergate Saturday Night Massacre uh, look like child's play compared to the massive revolt uh, that was threatened at the Justice Department. So kudos to those officials. Um, But, you know, as a former alum of justice, I was counsel to the then attorney general. So I have a sense of you know, the organization's integrity and the hierarchy. Uh, I don't want to give too much credit to them. They were certainly doing their job. They weren't going to go along with this 
attempted coup. But I think it also indicates just how much rot had already settled into the department um, under Barr, basically, because this kind of communication going on with the president, president staff, you know, at some points almost daily about this issue uh, is a very unprecedented situation. That kind of communication is very tightly controlled, um, as one of the officials, you know, brought up during the hearings. Um, but it's not just controlled for the sake of efficiency; it's controlled for the sake of integrity, because other administrations are very sensitive to the idea that if you have the White House or even members of Congress, you know, constantly calling about substantive issues in an investigation or possible investigation, that really is interference uh, with the department's autonomy and independence. And that's what really struck me about how dangerous this was, not only the very blatant efforts um, by Trump and his inner circle to actually get DOJ to help with the overturning, but also just as dangerously how this whole atmosphere had become the new normal that mm. they were talking about these issues. So that that's what really struck me. Yeah. I, I mean, what did you also think of the fact that even while former Attorney General Bill Barr was sort of laughing at the conspiracy theories that Trump wanted the Department of Justice to investigate, he did, in fact, or at least some of Justice, some of the Justice Department officials did look into them. Uh, <laughs> that That's a Great point. And that's exactly one of the concerns that I have. I mean, you know, you, you can't give former Attorney General Barr any credit for having helped the department's integrity. I mean, he really was terrible for it. I mean, there's a lot of damage that has to be repaired. And I think his testimony was quite self-serving. I mean, he throws around a couple of curse words, you know, to sound like he's really tough towards the president. But in the meantime, he had been carrying the president's water. I mean, helped cover up and distort the Mueller report findings. And when the president asks him to look at these issues, which were quite plain, had you know no base whatsoever. There was baseless allegations. I mean, the responsible thing would have been the way it should normally work <clears throat> is if there is a question from the White House that you'd run it down the chain into the components, get some reports back. And when it looks like there's absolutely nothing going on there, to tell the White House, you know, we're not looking at this. We've examined it. There's nothing going on. It, it, it should have been something that was just nipped in the bud long before this. And I really find Barr's testimony to be very self-serving. Shannon, well, we also learned on Thursday that at least six Republican House members sought pardons from Trump for themselves. Can you remind us what happened there? And I'd love to just get your thoughts on how you interpret those pardon requests. I should say the list, according to the testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson, who was an aide to Mark Meadows, included representatives Matt Gates, Mo Brooks, Andy Biggs, Scott Perry, Louis Gohmert, Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, potentially. Yeah, generally speaking, um, again, you know, not to keep being a dead horse, but this was another example of how corrupted and haywire the system had gone. Um, when I was counsel to Attorney General Reno, part of my portfolio uh, was not really overseeing, but involved getting reports from the Office of the Pardon Attorney about requests 
for pardons. And I can tell you, these were very, very conscientiously, carefully worked up analyses, quite long, where they really basically investigated a recommendation, prepared a very thorough report, looking at the histories of cases, sometimes interviewing people, and only then would make their recommendation to the leadership at the Justice Department, who might then take that and make the recommendation to the White House. The idea of this sort of, you know, helter-skelter, just people calling different people for pardons, uh, just indicates, you know, how really corrupted that system was. And I really found it very telling that the people testifying about it weren't even sure who had asked for pardons or had been given one. They're like, well, they didn't talk to me, but I heard they talked to someone else. I mean, it was just a completely a corruptly chaotic situation. And certainly, of course, common sense tells us you're not interested in asking for pardon unless you think you've done something wrong. And I think that's a correct inference to draw. Mm. You talk about the rot in the Justice Department. Do you feel like the change in administration has helped restore some of the integrity of the department? Or do you think that there is some lasting damage? Uh Yes and no. Absolutely. Uh, the new administration has done a lot to repair the damage. Uh, quite frankly, even the naming of Attorney General Garland, who has a great you know, uh, reputation for integrity, uh, as well as the Deputy Attorney General, Lisa Monica, who I'd worked with, we'd both worked for Ms. Reno. Um, these are people who I'm sure brought a lot of comfort to the career of people of justice. Now, I may have some disagreements about their pace on, on the criminal actions, mm. um, but in terms of integrity, yeah, it's, it's a no-brainer. Uh, but there is lasting damage. Uh, you can't undo that kind of abuse simply with new appointments and new um, people of integrity. I think the public image of the department has been very much damaged. And ironically, I think that may factor strongly into some of what I consider to be excessive caution on Garland's part, which is he's so aware that there's been a corrupted image that he's really worried about it now. Well, let's dig into that more after the break. Shanlin Wu, former federal prosecutor Zach Beecham of Vox. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about last Thursday's January 6th committee hearing, which focused on the pressure former President Trump put on his own Justice Department to spread the lie that the 2020 election was, quote, corrupt. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with your questions or reactions to the January 6th hearings, the testimony we heard last week or so far. 
You can also share how you're feeling about the state of our democracy based on more and more evidence that comes out to the extent that there was such an effort to wreak havoc on our democratic institutions. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Before we get a little more, Zach, into the what happens now, what are the steps potentially ahead of the DOJ, which uh, Shanlin was just saying before the break, he has issues a little bit with the pace there and at which they're moving. But uh, but Thursday was a follow-on to Tuesday's hearing where we learned details about the threats made to state lawmakers and state elections officials, especially who work in Arizona and Georgia. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about, about that Tuesday hearing and maybe how these two hearings um, reinforced each other. Oh. <clears throat> My view of it is that there was an overarching attempt by the president from basically the night of the election going forward to try to install himself in office in a second term. And it wasn't like he had a plan at the beginning and then executed on it. It's that there were just a series of improvised steps that they were going through, right? That were all, all with the aim of accomplishing the same goal of keeping Trump in power. At the beginning, they filed a bunch of basically frivolous lawsuits and lost all but one of them. When that failed, then they turned to state legislatures and trying to get them, state legislators and election officials, to try to overturn the results of the election, the Tuesday hearing. When that failed, they tried to use the DOJ as a tool to pressure state legislators to go into emergency sessions to do what they wouldn't do previously. And then when that failed, we ended up with this last-ditch scheme that gave us the attempt to get Mike Pence to throw the election back to Congress somehow illegally on January 6th and to call massive protests that turned into the riot. And in fact, the January 6th committee has presented evidence that some people planned, some groups planned to turn that into a riot to begin with. So what the relation is not, um, you know, that the, the president had a piece of paper that listed, here's how I'm going to destroy democracy over two months. It's that his administration was keep, they kept fumbling into different legal theories, relying on people like John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, uh, kind of legal cranks uh, to, to come up with these justifications because the president so desperately wanted to, to, to hold on to power. And that, that's what it was, right? It was a kind of improvised soft coup, not using the threat of force until the very end, which it did, but right. an attempt to suborn democracy by any means necessary. What I found so heartbreaking, and I was so glad you wrote about this, was just the way that he basically upended the lives of of poll workers and people who worked in elections like Andrea Moss and her mother, Ruby Freeman. And, and you talked about this and the permission for violence that has been unleashed as a result of this big lie. Can you well, say more about why you were struck by that? Think about it from the point of view of somebody who has been convinced that the election was fraudulent. You know, American politics is very polarized. The, we are deeply divided by the news sources we trust and the sorts of people we believe in. So if you're a Republican partisan who listens to Fox News and conservative talk radio, You've been convinced that there were serious irregularities at the level of local office in the American electoral system. That in places like Fulton County, where um, the mother-daughter pair that you just mentioned worked in Georgia or in Philadelphia, these 
primarily urban, heavily African-American areas, which were constantly being accused of, accused of as the, the sites of election fraud for the United in the United States that tipped the election in, in Biden's favor. Right. These local workers allegedly were responsible for stealing an election. And if you really believe that genuinely, then why wouldn't you see them as, as treasonous, seditious people who deserve to be harangued and threatened for suborning democracy itself? And that that idea has spread like wildfire, right? That people in local positions, like your, your neighborhood poll worker, is part of a plot against democracy. And so you've seen this astonishing increase in threats against people who staff local election administration positions. Um, I, you know, I spoke to one expert who has worked with election officials for a long time. He said he has never before seen large numbers of threats against election workers. It's just like was not a thing that happened. Nobody cared about local poll workers until 2020, when all of a sudden, you know, there's a survey of them that found something like 17 percent, uh, roughly, of poll workers had experienced some kind of job related threat. Uh, it, it's remarkable, like it, it, the the degree to which ordinary people, right, who often work these jobs at long hours, either in a volunteer capacity or for very little pay, have been demonized uh, as part of the effort to cast out on the 2020 election and the real human costs that they've suffered. You need to go into hiding, get legal protection. Um, some of them, you know, significant psychological trauma. It it just. It, it boggles the mind. Hmm. Well, we have calls coming in. Let me go to Jamal in Palm Springs. Hi, Jamal. Hi, Jamal. Are you there? Okay, well, we still try to get that call through from Jamal. Let me go next to Leah in San Francisco. Hi, Leah. Hi, good morning. Uh, I would like to pose a question of how we can still have an electoral college which was probably the focus of this latest um, harassment of the, our democratic system. And then also, Hillary Clinton, lest we forget, won the popular vote, as did um, a couple of other people. But they were superseded by the Electoral College, which I don't think is relevant or necessary since we're all pretty much literate and women can vote now. So what, do you, what is your opinion? So sh what should we be thinking about with regard to the Electoral College, asks Leah. I can start with you, Zach, on that really quick and then go to, to Shanlin. But, you know, share with us if you feel like this is one of the things that we should be re-looking at as a result of what we've learned about sure, the events leading up to January 6th. I think that uh, abolishing the Electoral College is a slam dunk case, right? It's just there's no advanced democracy that is anything like this kind of system. It's a vestige of a constitution that was formulated when democracy as we know it today did not exist, right? The American founders were trying to invent a system out of whole cloth, sort of patterned off of Athenian democracy, but not really. That was very, very different. Uh, and so they tried a number of different things that other countries learned from and, and built better constitutions. The problem is, right, the mechanism for getting rid of it doesn't exist. You need a constitutional amendment that is not going to happen, to put it mildly, under conditions of intense polarization. So while it is obvious that the Electoral College should be abolished, um, there are, there are ways short of a constitutional amendment to try to do it, like the interstate compact that would basically ensure that 270 votes, electoral college votes will always go to the winner of the national popular vote. Um, the problem is you need enough state 
states to authorize that. And even then the Supreme Court could find it unconstitutional. Um, it just like the constitution is so hard to amend and the U.S. system so resistant to change that even making very obvious structural changes is incredibly difficult. Shanlin, you have thoughts on this? Uh, I completely second abolish the electoral college. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I, I agree with Zach. Uh, it is a uh, prehistoric concept. Uh, had these formation documents been done, you know, a little bit later, I think they might've used a different structure. Uh, it is so hard to, to amend the constitution, but I do think that there are workarounds like uh, the interstate compact that Zach just mentioned. Uh, frankly, I think the key to that, however, um, is getting a majority and that is really about voting. So I really think it comes down to getting the vote out um, to gain that power. I just think there are so many things in our system that are uh, counter-majoritarian and would be much better off uh, being able to let the majority rule. Let me go to caller Dan in Santa Clara. Hi, Dan. Hey, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. I am curious about the connection between the riot insurrection putsch through attempt that we all, I think, as Americans understand happened now and the legislative machinations going on, particularly uh, the January 6th community hasn't made a connection there yet, but I've heard and read that had there been violence where a politician or even someone like Mike Pence or Nancy Pelosi had been kidnapped or injured, that would have been a pretext for martial law being declared in Washington, D.C., which is under federal jurisdiction, and that would have prevented the actual nine o'clock reconvening where they Congress did make sure that the election results were certified and then were into a total gray zone had that not have happened. Now I'm wondering what's going on there. Is this, this conspiracy stuff or is this a real concern? Shanlon, what do you think about what Dan is asking here? Well, I, I think, um, you know, echoing a little bit about, uh, what Zach had said, uh, having been in the government, uh, I'm always a little bit skeptical about just how well organized uh, conspiracies, criminal conspiracies can be, because I, I, I've seen criminal conspiracies and uh, they usually, there's an idea, there's an intent, steps are taken, but they're not always uh, particularly well organized. So I think here we're seeing a lot of connections between things that happen but the idea that there are very specific, overt communications to make all that come together, I think that's probably not there. But what we're seeing, I think, is very important. There are themes, for example, we can see some obvious themes with what's happening with the Supreme Court that I think very much relate uh, to some of these issues that, that we're seeing. So overt, specific planning going on, rare to, to see that but people in alignment and trying to help uh, when they can, that, that we do see all the time. To the extent that the committee acknowledged this uh, in any way, I do want to play actually a cut from Representative Benny Thompson, chair of the committee, as he was giving his closing statement on Thursday's hearing. Up to this point, we've shown the inner workings of what was essentially a political coup an attempt to use the powers of the government from the local level all the way up to overturn the results of the election. Find me the votes, send fake electors, just say the election was corrupt. Along the way, 
We saw threats of violence. We saw what some people were willing to do. In a service of the nation, the Constitution, no. In service of Donald Trump. When the Select Committee continues this series of hearings, we're going to show how Donald Trump tapped into the threat of violence, how he summoned the mob to Washington, and how, after corruption and political pressure failed to keep Donald Trump in office, violence became the last option. Again, that was Representative Benny Thompson in his closing statement on Thursday. And I also want to note for listeners that we have just learned that the House Select Committee investigating January 6th will convene a hearing tomorrow to present recently obtained evidence and receive witness testimony. That is the word we have so far. So rather than take a pause until mid-July, as they had been suggesting, to reconvene after the July 4th recess, they will in fact hold a hearing tomorrow. We'll try to update you with more information on that. Again, we're talking with Zach Beecham, senior correspondent for Vox, and Shanlin Wu, a criminal defense attorney and former federal prosecutor, also a CNN legal analyst. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your questions about the hearing so far, what they say, uh, your concerns about the state of our democracy as a result of what you are learning and the threat to it. And uh, Shanlin Wu, as we were talking about just before the break, you are saying that you've been a little frustrated with the pace with which it feels like criminal prosecutions are coming. And a lot of people have pointed to the committee hearings as laying out a roadmap of sorts for prosecuting Trump. First, can you tell me, it sounds like if you are frustrated at the pace that you do believe that there is evidence to prosecute, sufficient evidence to prosecute the president. Oh, absolutely. I I do. Uh, All of the analysis about whether there could be a prosecution of Trump has really centered around this question of what's his state of mind? What is his intent? And prosecutors and law enforcement, you'll never have the ability to read someone's mind. So you're always looking at circumstantial evidence, writings, what they've said to people, and of course, their actions. Um, I've said this before. I mean, if I was prosecuting this case, I would be salivating at the amount of intent evidence there is here. And the only defense, and prosecutors have to think about the defense ahead of time, would be that Trump claims, oh, I genuinely believed uh, that there was fraud. I genuinely thought that I won. And that is what is being eviscerated by this public testimony by the Jan 6 committee. There's no way that any sane person (laughs) could believe that, which perhaps leaves them with an insanity defense. Uh, But I certainly think uh, that there is sufficient evidence to prosecute him, and I would think to convict him as well. And as to the pace, it's simply that it's a little bit backwards here. Usually the criminal case investigation goes first, followed by Congress. So this is a little backwards. There could be some positives to that, um, but I have been frustrated by that. I feel like they could have jumped on this earlier. What are they weighing? What is the DOJ weighing? And what do you think our listeners need to understand about how prosecutions work, Shannon? Sure. I think what they're weighing is they're very concerned about whether they would be vulnerable to being attacked uh, as being partisan. Uh, Barr had corrupted the integrity of DOJ, had made it into a weapon um, for Trump. Uh, 
And Trump continues to try to do that, asking them to declare, you know, we're looking at this in terms of fraud for the non-existent fraud. I think Attorney General Garland's very worried about that, and he wants to make sure that whatever case he has is airtight. And probably there's been a lot of analysis by the department's Office of Legal Counsel looking at questions ranging from executive privilege to whether or not they can really make some of these charges as to a president, which obviously is very unprecedented. So it's a new type of prosecution being brought against the former president. He's worried about that. He's worried about whether if they bring it and lose or even if they win, does it set them on a path where the next Justice Department will be trying to look back at this administration. So he's worried about the kind of precedent that he's going to set. I think it's so important to understand this concept of prosecutorial discretion. Not all cases that have evidence are brought. In fact, many of them are are not. And that is up to the prosecutor. And part of that discretion is weighing, is this a just case? Is it worth my resources? And whether I'll win because prosecutors are afraid of losing. (laughs) And a lot of times when you hear them talking about, we don't think we had enough evidence to prove beyond reasonable doubt. What they're really saying is this is a tough case. You know, I didn't want to lose it. And, you know, Garland probably does not want to go down history as the attorney general who lost the case against the former president. But some cases, as we used to say, they have to be tried. And this is one of them. Yeah, you know, Dean of the UC Berkeley School of Law, Erwin Chemerinsky, wrote, Prosecuting Trump would involve serious risks. It would make him a martyr to some and be condemned as partisan persecution. The trial, and surely there would be a trial, would dominate the news for months, ironically giving Trump the sort of platform and attention he craves. If he were acquitted, his supporters would trumpet the verdict as vindication. Despite all of this, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland's Justice Department should criminally prosecute Trump. Criminal law exists partly so that society may express disapproval of conduct it deems unacceptable. I'm hearing echoes of what you were saying, Shamlin, and what Erwin Chemerinsky was also concluding. We're talking about where we go with these January 6th hearings that are revealing more and more the effort to sabotage the results of the 2020 election with Shanlin Wu, criminal defense attorney and former federal prosecutor, and Zach Beecham, senior correspondent for Vox. You are also with us. Stay with us. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about 
The January 6th committee hearings and what they are revealing about the threat to democracy posed by the lie of a stolen election. Shanlin Wu is criminal defense attorney, former federal prosecutor, CNN legal analyst. Zach Beecham is a senior correspondent for Vox. And you, our listeners, are sharing your questions and reactions. And let me go to caller Jamal. I think we've got Jamal back from Palm Springs. Hi, Jamal. Are you there? <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Uh, we will see if he can connect with us at a later time. But uh, I wanted to ask you, Shannon, really quickly, what you could tell us about the prosecution that is going on in Georgia. We've been hearing from other legal analysts who've come on our show previously um, to that they feel like the prosecution that's going on there. Um, may actually be more likely to move forward or even move forward more quickly. What what can you tell us about it? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I've always felt that uh, the greatest risk uh, to Trump and his inner circle was the Georgia case. It seems to be moving along more quickly. Uh, it's a state case. Uh, therefore, it's dealing with a slightly smaller bureaucracy than the Justice Department would be dealing with. Um, and really that language, the phone calls, you know, we've heard the pressure he exerted um, upon Georgia saying that he had a very specific number of votes he wanted them to find. Uh, you know, all of that could also be prosecuted federally, but I think where they're going with the Georgia case sounds like um, it is progressing at a good pace, uh, you know, not an incredibly fast pace either, but I th certainly think that is an advanced stage. And I do think that's the most likely one to uh, result in a charge first, which, you know, all by itself would be extremely unprecedented, of course. Yes, unprecedented. Jave writes, one of the things I find most egregious is Bill Barr's revelation that he would still vote for former President Donald Trump in a future election, knowing the depths of how corrupt he was. It's almost unbelievable the length some people on the right will go to maintain power. What will change their minds if this doesn't? Zach, can you talk about that? What effect is this having uh, on Republicans? There's been Republican pushback, of course, that we've heard in terms of you know, some Republicans on Capitol Hill saying that the, the hearings are totally one-sided and really just a way to deflect from other major issues like high gas prices, inflation, and so on. I think uh, Kevin McCarthy called it the least legitimate committee in American history. But the testimony is largely the testimony of senior Republicans in Mr. In former President Trump's White House um, and his campaign members as well. So, so what are you seeing in terms of the impact on Republicans who felt his conduct was egregious, but are still saying that they would vote for him? I mean, the so Rusty Bowers, who is the um, Speaker of the Nevada House uh, House of Representatives, sorry, not Nevada, Arizona. Um, said basically the same thing, right? He gave this incredibly powerful testimony about how he, you know, he thought he was being asked to abandon his oath of office right, by overturning the election and how his house was mobbed with pro-Trump protesters while his daughter lay dying inside his house. Uh, and yet then the next day after his testimony, he told the Associated Press that he'd vote for Trump again because uh, this is a rough paraphrase of what he said. I think before COVID, everything he did was great. Uh, if there's this incredible element of like, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play to these kinds of arguments? 
right? Like before COVID, first of all, uh, right? Like COVID is, is, is kind of important. And then there's January 6th, which led to literal threats on his life uh, at some one of the most intimate and, and sad times of, of his life. And yet he still would vote for Trump again. Um, it, it speaks to the incredible power of partisan polarization. If, if there's one thing I've learned from spending a lot of time talking to political scientists, reading the, the literature on this, it's that however important and however powerful you think political or political polarization is in American politics, like like double that. And then you're more likely to assess the impact of it, right? The, it, this profoundly shapes everything. It shapes the way we process information. It shapes even the way in some lab experiments, the way that people do math, right? They'll, they will get the wrong answer and try to justify it in a simple math problem if it's phrased in a word in such a way that it is more beneficial to their side's policy, preferred policy outcomes. Uh, it, it just, it profoundly structures the way that people in the United States see the world, your allegiance to a party, in a way that is not true in most advanced democracies. And so it means even the people most capable of recognizing the depths of Trump's malfeasance in 2020, because they were victims of it, are some of the people who would be willing to not only support him again, uh, but do so full well knowing the risks and support a party that is all lined up behind him if he wants to run again. It's, it's just, it's profoundly depressing and I see no prospect for it changing in the immediate term. Well, here are a couple of other listener comments related to that. Rob writes, Jeff Rosen and the other DOJ officials are being hailed as heroes for doing their job and standing up to the former president. However, have they come forward quickly enough? Should they have said something in the days of early January? Should they have come forward in Donald Trump's second impeachment hearings? Todd writes, Without consequences and DOJ indictments, the hearings are just providing more examples of flouting the law. Like the impeachments and Mueller report, these examples of treasonously bad behavior only provide new broken limits of what our elected officials can get away with and break our faith with the system of law and order the Democrats think they are supporting here. If necessary, go low. It's time. Let me go to Deborah in Berkeley. Hi, Deborah. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Always interesting on KQED Forum. And the last comment about our polarization actually is kind of the context for the question that I have. And one of your speakers referenced earlier about how, um, you know, where do people get their sources of information? And so I'm wondering, how do we overcome this polarization when we really don't have any source of shared facts? and information anymore and whether you're listening to the hearings it just feeds in to people thinking well they're the democrats are lying or you know so and fox if you get your source from fox news or the new york times it feeds into the polarization so i'm just wondering this is such a big question i don't know that you there's a particular answer but what are your perspectives on like you mentioned other western democracies how do we get back to some kind of shared source of factual information. Shannon, we'll all go to you on this. Thanks, Deborah. Sure. Uh, that's a great question. It's really the question of our time. I think that, you know, today we have so much more information available to us, and that's a double-edged sword. I mean, it's a positive thing because we don't have to depend on a curated source, which may have its own racist or implicit 
biases, we can get information for ourselves from many, many voices. I mean, kind of what the First Amendment envisioned. The flip side of that, of course, is very hard to distinguish which voices to listen to. I mean, I'll use a tiny example, which is there can be so much energy about all these different new candidates coming up, and yet we'll also hear that it's foolish to throw money at supporting campaigns that can't win, and people can't really figure that out. That's a very tiny example of that. I think the solution is certainly the social media platforms do need to be more rigorous in basically eliminating false and harmful information. Exercising judgment is not the same as being one-sided or censorship. It's trying to give accurate information. And a lot of the hate speech, terribly misleading things, these are no-brainers. This is not you know, a question of, well, you know, maybe it's a partisan issue. It's simply wrong, the information there. So I do think that part of the solution would be to require Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, to, to do more about that content regulation, because much as they don't want to be in that business, they don't think of themselves as newspapers, and, and they're not. Um, but there is an aspect of that, that of their role that really requires some type of regulation. Zach, we've been hearing from Democrats in particular that the way to get back to some semblance of, of order is to vote. You know, you both have been following you and Shanlin, not just these hearings, but also the Supreme Court's decision Friday in Dobbs, which eliminated the constitutional right to an abortion, which many are still reeling from. And I guess I'm curious to hear if you connect these two things. Zach, you first. Sure. Uh, Basically, I see there being two fundamental trends that have thrown America into political crisis. The first is extreme polarization, just the fact of increasing divisions between the two parties and and the separation of the United States into two uh, basically polarized camps of of where political party becomes a stand-in for a broader identity that pits you against fellow citizens. The second and related trend, but, but this is a much more asymmetric one, is the embrace in the Republican Party of a willingness to break the rules of democracy when attempting to implement your agenda and to implement it in the most hard line and kind of at all costs way. And so it's not just that the Supreme Court just overturned Roe versus Wade, which has been a, a conservative objective for obviously decades since Roe happened, um, since before even it happened in some ways, it's that the way in which they got their court majority, right, was by uh, first blockading Merrick Garland in 2016 when uh, President Barack Obama tried to appoint him to replace Antonin Scalia after the late justice's death, uh, then by ramming through Brett Kavanaugh amidst very credible allegations of sexual assault, by breaking the precedent they established in the Garland case. Uh, to appoint Amy Coney Barrett just about eight days before the 2020 election. Um, And without any of those steps, given if you look at, say, Justice Roberts's dissent, it's not likely there would have not, sorry, his concurrence, which wanted, seemed to preach for a more moderate approach to the, to the ruling in Dobbs. um, 
the, we probably wouldn't have had this, this, this conservative objective of overturning Roe and returning abortion to the states. That wouldn't have happened in the, the categorical way that it did, absent this alliance with Donald Trump and the forces of anti-democratic, rule-breaking populism that he represents. So to me, these two events, January 6th and the Supreme Court's extreme rightward turn, not just on abortion, but on all sorts of issues, you know, got a major religious liberty ruling today um, that really attacked the establishment clause separating church and state, um, that there's, there's a substantive political agenda Republicans have of transforming the country along their lines to a sort of like post-neo-1950s idea of what social, the social order should look like, and a willingness to accomplish that goal through extremely, extremely aggressive behaviors, including ones that challenge not only the norm of like peaceful coexistence between the parties, but also the viability of America's electoral institutions themselves. Yes. Uh, it's 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 a very very, um, I, I mean, it's, to me, it's an it's an existential threat to American democracy, and I don't want to use those terms lightly. I don't like to be alarmist, but it is. I think the the the, sent, the the collision of polarization and the radicalization of the Republican Party has created the gravest threat to the contiguity of the American Republic since the Civil War. And as you mentioned, the integ- calling into question the integrity of the vote is a piece of that, which is in part where I draw. Some connection. We're talking with Zach Beecham, and you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Shanlin Wu, I want to ask you about that as well. If you draw connections between what we are seeing um, with regard to rulings like Dobbs and what we're learning from the hearings. I I do. I think um, focusing specifically on the Supreme Court I think what we see here is just the uh, culmination of decades of work um, by the conservative right uh, to be able to put out all of these judges through the federal society, knowing that some will percolate up um, to the Supreme Court. Uh, I mean, forget post 1950s, Justice Alito seems to want us to go back, you know, to the 1600s with his citing this notorious jurist, Matthew Hale, for his reasoning, um, you know, Hale believed women should be executed for witchcraft and, you know, they cannot be raped by their husbands. This, the court has always been a counter-majoritarian institution, and now they have become basically a super legislature. The executive branch, frankly, and the legislative branch have become subservient to them. They're unrevealable, and they are frankly making the laws now, and that really needs to be changed. How, How can we change that? There are a bunch of things that could be started on, all of which require a lot of uh, political manpower. Certainly, we can expand the court. Certainly, we can put term limits on. I would say you should even rotate federal judges through that. But the idea is to dilute that super legislator power. Uh, It's just too much power concentrated in these nine people. And also, frankly, right now, I think in terms of the way that they testified during their confirmation hearings, there should be an impeachment inquiry into that. I, as a prosecutor, I think it's highly unlikely you could prosecute them for perjury based on they didn't swear. I promised to never overturn Roe, but it was certainly misleading. Uh, Some of that's the nature of the confirmation hearings, but it's misleading. And the Kavanaugh allegations were never properly investigated. And of course, now there's this enormous problem 
um, with Justice Thomas and his wife. Those things can all be looked at through impeachment inquiries and whether it gets the point of impeachment, it does something to try and oversee, to try and discipline a Supreme Court that has become extremely rogue and, and radical at this point. A couple more thoughts from our listeners. Speakers are blaming polarization, but that implies that Democrats and Republicans are equally polarized and equally responsible. But Democrats are being responsible. Blame Republicans, if that's what you mean. Merrily writes, your guest stated that from the night of the election, the former president was intent on doing whatever to stay in power. But as early as April 2020, the former POTUS was telling rallies that the election would be fraudulent if he is not elected. And his roadie sycophants, groupies and blinded followers believed him. Last question on this, Zach. You wrote a piece last month, and you updated it just yesterday, called What Happens When the Public Loses Faith in the Supreme Court? And you make the case that this has happened already, and you further raise the scenario that this court could be called upon to decide the outcome of the 2024 election. So here, you're scaring us here with the potential confluence of a radical court and a falsely contested election. But can you talk about why you felt the need to raise that? Sure. Um, the one of the, if not you know, the the central point of the Supreme Court in the American constitutional system uh, is, at least in the way that it's emerged over time, is to resolve disputes between the other branches. Uh, right. That's part of part of the whole point of having it be a third and separate branch that exists at the federal levels, not just, you know, being the ultimate court of appeals in criminal cases, but like when the executive and the legislature disagree, someone has to mediate. Um, or when the, you know, a state or the federal government disagree, right? That's the, it's, it's, a, it's a tiebreaker. The court has done much, much more than that over the course of its time, but that's by design part of what it's supposed to do. Um, and in order to perform that role, you need people to trust that the court's going to rule in such a way that's consistent with legal principle, fidelity to the text, and not just rank partisanship. Uh, and yet we have very good reason to no longer believe that anymore. And so how are our elections supposed to work in the event that they're close and contested? I think it's something that we need to start preparing for and, and start thinking through. The threat to democracy was real in January of 2021 and the end of 2020. And what you're basically saying is it's very real now. Zach Beecham, Shanlin Wu, appreciate you both for being on with us. Shanlin Wu criminal defense attorney, former federal prosecutor, CNN legal analyst, Zach Beecham, senior correspondent for Vox. My thanks to our listeners. My thanks to Caroline Smith and Susie Britton for producing today's segment. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.